There have been countless times in my life where I go to do something and about three quarters of the way to doing something, I forget what it was that I was supposed to be doing. Now, those that laugh are aware of this. You walk upstairs, you're like, what was it? I don't remember. And then you go back to where you were, and you're like, okay, maybe if I stand here long enough, I'll remember what it was that I was supposed to be doing when I forgot. Well, I think that is human nature, that we quickly forget the things that we want to do as well as the things that we are supposed to do. And so this morning, as John finishes up his testimony of the Lord's life here on earth and what the Lord expects of us now that he has returned to heaven, he is going to take this last opportunity to try to remind us once more what it is that we are supposed to do. Um, as I've read and read and read this final chapter of John's testimony, I am more than that God wants us to be encouraged. Not discouraged, not condemned, but encouraged. He wants us to leave here fully aware for those that are redeemed in Christ, those that see Jesus as Lord and Savior that have been redeemed, we are persistently pursued by Him. We are restored to Him, and we are commissioned to follow Him. I'm convinced of that. And so we're going to walk through this passage here in John 21, and we're going to walk through it in such a way that I'm hoping that we uncover those three things that we are pursued, we are restored, and we are commissioned and apply them to our lives. And so let's first look at the way that Jesus has not only redeemed but pursued His people. So John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And so Jesus reveals himself to Peter, to Tommy, to Jimmy and Johnny, to Nate, and two others. Now, some ask, well, why only seven? Why not everybody like he already has? Well, look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. See, Peter says, I'm going fishing. He doesn't ask people to come. He doesn't say, hey, you all come with me. There's a small group of them that said, hey, hey, we're in, we'll go with you. Now, the fact that he's going fishing limits the number. So if you look at 
a ship in first century Galilee, the crew is normally five. Now there's seven on the boat. Means tight quarters, right? So if you've got this group of guys that are saying, hey, I'll go with you, if I'm the other guy, I'm saying, hey, you guys enjoy being tight on your own like I'm good not doing that. But see what's special about these six. Nothing. They're believers in the Lord, but what we do know is that those names that are listed are those who are from the same hometown as Peter. These are guys that have been Peter's friends for life. And so all this stuff has gone on, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. They're saying, hey, we'll go too. It's comfortable for them. Now, I do find it interesting that we don't know who the other two are because I myself probably would have remembered who the other two people were that I was cramped with for an entire night when I didn't catch anything. I have no idea. Like you look at you're like, why wouldn't you? Obviously, it doesn't matter. Why fishing? Well, they might have been hungry. It might be because that's all they know how to do. Or maybe it's where Peter wanted to go that was normal to process all that's gone on. Hey, all this has happened. I just need to get away. I'm going to go fishing. Have you ever found yourself in a place where there's lots going on? And it's in the mundane activities of everyday life that the brain processes through. Anybody? You're driving. All of a sudden, connections start happening. You're working out, you're shoveling snow, you're in the shower, you're like, oh, now I, yeah. See, that, that's what happens, is that when we have time just in everyday activities, that connections start to be made. And what I appreciate about what we see here is that it's a reminder that Jesus persistently pursues us in our everyday activities. It means we don't have to do anything special to be pursued by him. Now, when these guys went fishing, they weren't seeking Jesus. They weren't hoping to come face to face with him. They just knew they were getting inside of a boat. They were going fishing, or at least that's what they thought they were going to do. So they go out, they spend an evening fishing and they catch nothing. Now, most fishermen expect to catch something when they go fishing. Right? Is that safe to say? Now, if you think about fishing in that day, it was a very manual process. See, today when you go deep sea fishing, you get in the back of a boat, and when you get far enough out, you toss a whole bunch of lures out there, and then you kind of sit there and wait while the boat's going and trolling until something strikes the lure. And then it's work. Now, in this case, because they caught nothing, that would have meant that things would have gone in and they would have sat there all night. But that's not the way fishing was in first century. See, you had to basically heave a net over the side of a boat. It's weighed down either with large rocks or iron or something to bring it deep enough. And then once it got down there, then you hauled it back up 
in hopes that you caught something other than seaweed or sticks. You hope something living is inside of it. And after an entire night of tossing and pulling and tossing and pulling, nothing, not a single fish. Now, they got a great back workout. John continues, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, in case you missed it, I love this part of the story. Because here we have the Lord of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence. He created everything. He created the water that the boat is on. He created the wood that the boat is made out of. Because he created the trees, he placed the minerals in the earth that are used for the iron that weighed down the net. He formed the rocks they used as weights. Oh, and by the way, he also created the fish in the sea. And he's on shore and calls out, hey, children, do you have any fish? See, he's the one who directed the fish not to enter the net. And he asked them, hey, did you catch anything? See, that's funny. <laughs> now imagine how they responded, no. Do you think it was like, no, 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 we're good? They're seasoned fishermen. You think that no was maybe a little frustrated, grumbling? Oh, did you ask me anything? I, I didn't hear you. <laughs> And he says, hey, try throwing it on the right side of the boat. Now, I can hear myself responding, really? You want me to throw it on the right side of the boat as if I didn't try that already? Who are you? You're not even on the sea. You're standing on the shore. How about you swim out to the boat and throw it on the right side instead? And that's one reason of many that I wasn't born a disciple. And yet they cast it out. Look at verse 6b. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. So here they are in the midst of their normal life experience, out on the sea fishing. And Jesus is standing on the shore, pursuing them watching what they're doing, and he kindly, at the right time, engages them. And as he pursues them, he actively orchestrates their life experiences so that they recognize it's the Lord who was with them. 
See, they weren't seeking him. They didn't expect to find him. He makes himself known to them, and as a result, they respond. And each of their responses is different. John tells Peter, hey, Pete, like, like that's Jesus. Peter jumps in the sea to go to the Lord, and he leaves the rest of the guys to bring in the fish. I love Peter. Friends, for those who are redeemed in Christ, we are persistently pursued by him in the midst of our everyday activities so that we will recognize that he is with us. Moms with little children whose little ones seem to refuse to sleep, everything you try all night long seems void. Jesus is pursuing you then. Maybe you found yourself trying to fix something, a fence or a garage door or a Wi-Fi router, and after hours and hours and hours, you're at your wit's end, and you finally throw up your hands and say, I can't do anymore. Jesus is pursuing you then. Or maybe you've been sharing the gospel with a family member for years, and it doesn't seem like anything is working. Like you would expect Jesus to show up then. but nothing's working. He's pursuing you for his purpose. Not that you would be successful, but that you would respond to him. That's why he pursues you. See, that's the point. In the everyday things of life, the Lord pursues us and is present with us we just don't notice. He orchestrates things so that we commune with Him because that's what's best for us. And that brings us to the second element of Christ's work with His children. The purpose behind His persistent pursuit is restoration. So before I begin reading in verse 9, I want to point out that Jesus addressed his disciples on the water. He called them children. These children are sweaty, burly, strong, full-grown, seafaring men who spent a night of fishing frustrated because they caught nothing. And he called them children. See, he pursues them and reaches out in a way that helps John realize it's Jesus Christ, the risen Messiah who's calling out because nobody in their right mind would call them children. See, where I grew up, if you decided to call somebody a name, there was a consequence that came with that. Anybody grew up in that environment? Yeah, and so he uses a name that is familiar to them. Come to me as little children. Let the children come to me. He is their Lord. He is their shepherd. And so he uses a term that is affectionate. He uses a term because children need to be cared for. 
And it says in verse 9, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in its place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now I want you to humor me for a few minutes. If you have your Bible with you, pull out a pen and circle charcoal fire. If you have a digital version, highlight it. Now, I want you to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, no hands, on how well or how confident you are in knowing why that phrase, charcoal fire, matters. One means, I'm not sure why it matters. And 10 means, nailed it, got it down. Okay, So you just, in your mind, keep that there. interesting is that phrase is only used twice in the entire Bible. Is it safe to say that it's only listed once here? Normally we say when something is repeated, it's important, right? It's not repeated there. So why is it important? Well, the first time that it's used is actually in the midst of Peter's denial of Jesus. See, if you turn back a few chapters Look at chapter 18. Go to chapter 18, verse 15. So in chapter 18, verse 15, I'm going to condense this a bit. Peter enters the courtyard of the high priest as he's following Jesus. He's trying to stay close within an eyesight of his Lord. And he's allowed to enter the court of the high priest because the disciple that Peter is with is known by the high priest. Okay? Verse 16 indicates that Peter had to be personally let in. The disciple who Peter is with had to vouch for Peter. Yeah, he's with me. It's okay. And the servant girl simply asks Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? Now, she just let him in on account of the fact that he was with a disciple. And Peter still says, I'm not. How many have seen the Polar Express? Yeah? So in the Polar Express, there's an account where little Johnny puts gum in his sister's hair, and you consistently hear, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That's Peter. No, not me. No, no, no. Even though I'm with the disciple, no, I... Like, that denial was more than just random. It was intentional. And it says in verse 18, Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Circle charcoal fire there. Because the next time you read through that passage, if you see charcoal fire circled, you will remember the significance. Now turn back to 21. Jesus has a charcoal fire going with fish already laid on it. Now to have a charcoal fire going means that Jesus didn't just gather some driftwood that was sitting by the sea. 
See, in order to have a charcoal fire, you had to take wood. You then had to burn the wood in an oven where there was not enough oxygen for it to burn fully. So it's now condensed. Then you bring that wood that's already been burned and you place it down. See, today, we just go down to the Ace Hardware, grab a thing of charcoal briquettes, we grab a bunch of lighter fluid, and, and we got charcoal fire. It's not that big a deal. But back then, you had to prepare the charcoal to use it. And he's also already got fish laid out on it, so he already went fishing. See, my guess is he just said, hey, fish, come here, and he just picked them up and put them on there, because he can do that. See, not only did it take him time to prepare, the result is also unique. A charcoal fire burns differently than wood. It smells different. It sounds different. See, it burns hotter and longer, which is why they would use it to warm themselves. It doesn't have the same fresh scent of the wood because it's already been burned. There's very little cracking and popping because that already happened when it was being prepared. And as Peter walks up to this charcoal fire, in an instant he is brought back to that night when he denied the Lord. But what's amazing is Jesus doesn't bring the charcoal fire to condemn Peter, but to restore him. See, sadly, I think that we can find ourselves when we're trying to make a point, we point out someone's error, but we're not able to restore. Jesus, on the other hand, brings the error forward so he can say, no, I've already covered that. See, what we're going to see this morning is that the Lord Jesus who pursues his children meets his children right where they're at to restore them. That's why he meets his children. If you recall, our ministry theme for 2023 was the compassion of Christ. This passage places Jesus' compassion center stage. There's no better passage to conclude our ministry year with See, Jesus intentionally restores Peter's denial. When Peter thinks back of all the things that he could have ever done, the one thing that comes to mind is, I denied my Lord. So Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to cover that first, so that way you have nothing else to worry about. See, Jesus brought the charcoal because he knew exactly what he was going to do. He was seeking out one of his children who had denied him. See, Peter was so boisterous that he would die for Jesus. John 13, Jesus said, hey, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And yet when the servant girl asked him, he denied it. Oh, Peter the valiant. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Hey, bring some of that fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The Lord of the universe doesn't take credit for the catch of fish. He tells them to put their net on the right side. They haul in this massive catch that they couldn't find moments earlier. And Jesus says, hey, come bring some of the fish that you've caught. Anything that we do is enabled by the Holy Spirit. And yet we are allowed the credit for doing something. That's amazing. Are we grateful for the seemingly normal graces he grants? Maybe it's the last two slices of bread for toast that you desired that somehow didn't go bad. Or maybe it's your favorite flannel shirt that you reached for this morning that somehow hasn't worn through. Or when your gas tank shows empty and you somehow make it another 19 more miles on the highway just in time to be able to fill up. Friends, that's the Lord caring for you, giving you exactly what you need in that time. And it's so easy to overlook. I would imagine that his words, come and have breakfast, may have been the best words they could have heard. And John says that when they had finished breakfast, this is verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John comments, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. See, Jesus meets us where we're at so that we have an opportunity to follow him. So let's pull this apart to understand the first time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? I imagine Jesus pointing either to his friends, do you love me more than these guys who willingly came with you? Or the fish that you just ate. But I think it was the former. I think it was the guys. Because the Greek word for love there is agape, referencing God's sacrificial love. And Jesus says, Peter, do you sacrificially love me more than these? What's interesting, though, is that as Peter responds, now poignantly aware of the night that he denied even knowing his Lord on account of the charcoal fire that he's now warmed by, 
he responds with a very different word for love. Jesus asks, do you agape me? And Peter responds, I phileo you. See, phileo is a love between friends. It is not sacrificial. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I'm your friend. And even though Jesus asked, do you agape me? And Peter responds, well, I, I'm your friend. Jesus doesn't condemn him. He doesn't challenge him. He doesn't remind him of the night that he denied him. He simply says, feed my lambs. See, on account of Peter's willingness to be transparent with the Lord, the Lord calls him to care for the youngest of his flock. Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, do you agape me? Do you sacrificially love me? And Peter responds once again, changing the verb for love, yes, Lord, you know that I'm your friend. I, I kind of like you. And Jesus responds again without condemnation. This time placing on him even more responsibility. Tend my sheep. See, he's being asked to shepherd, to provide care for Jesus' flock, to watch over, to protect, to fight for. Peter, this boldness that you had to die for me, I want you to use that to protect my people. And then Jesus asked a third time, Simon, do you phileo me? See, Jesus sets the sacrificial standard of love aside and meets Peter right where he's at. He asks in a sense, Peter, I'm not going to ask you to live up to something you cannot live up to. Do you love me as you are able in the way that you've now told me twice that you could love me? And it says that Peter's heart hurts because Jesus asked me, do you love me as a friend? See, Peter wants to love Jesus sacrificially. How many here want to love Jesus more than they demonstrate by their actions? See, I'm raising my hand with you. I desire to love him more, but I am poignantly aware of my failure. Peter is distinctly aware of his failure to love Jesus sacrificially. And he responds, you know everything. You know that's all I got. That's it. And Jesus responds, feed my sheep. He's effectively saying, Peter, I appreciate your honest assessment of where you're at and the humility with which you're now responding. It's very different than the way you were before. Give my word to my people. Feed them. Don't just protect them, but get, give them what they need to live. He says, and as a result, by doing what I'm asking you to do, by giving my word to my people so that they might live, one day you will love me in the way that you desire to love me in sacrificially.
And he finishes by saying, follow me. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been concerned with the feeding of his people. Literally, by feeding thousands with some fish and with some bread. It's interesting here that we have fish being used to feed his people. But also, as we saw in chapter 10, the good shepherd has promised to keep and to feed his sheep as they listen to his words. And so here in 21, Peter is being reinstated as the under-shepherd. Accompanied by a call, follow me, that's reminiscent of Jesus' initial call back in 143, where he said, follow me. Same call. The first call was to bring him into the flock. The second call is to send him to feed the flock. Friends, the Lord meets you where you're at. He knows everything about you. He's as compassionate with you as he is Peter. He brings no condemnation when he engages with you. So meet with him. Confess your failure to him. Now, did Peter say, I'm sorry? Was that what Peter did? Did he, he go to the Lord and say, hey, I'm sorry for denying you? No, there was no direct response. It was in the way that Peter responded, being honest and transparent with the Lord, that he communicated his repentance. See, repentance is more than words. Repentance is action. And Jesus asks you to do the same. Know where you're at. Be transparent with the Lord and let Him know where you're at. He already knows. And I can promise you that His charge to you after you do that is simply follow me. See, we are called to follow Jesus. Friends, do you recall a few weeks back, I said we have one job to do. One job the same thing we're seeing here, to glorify God by making God and Jesus known to the world. Peter is called to follow him by feeding, by giving his word to his people. See, that's what we see this morning. He pursues us. He pursues us to restore us, and he restores us so that we would follow him. And then John so very kindly gives us an example of how quickly we can forget what it is we were supposed to be doing. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is that going to betray you? So Peter's talking about John here. So when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad 
among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books or the scrolls that would be written. See, Jesus says, don't worry about what I've asked others to do. Don't worry about all the people around you and what they're doing. You follow me. What is it to you if I choose that John never dies? Don't worry about it. You follow me. See, this is the call on our lives. Follow Jesus. Don't concern yourself with what others have been given. Don't concern yourself with the ways others are ministering, whether it's the size of a different church or the number of folks at someone's care group or the number of responses to the gospel. Don't concern yourself with that. Follow him. See, when we think about those things, Jesus is saying to you this morning, what is that to you? You follow me. Brothers, sisters, John's gospel is a Christ-centered, evangelistic testimony that begs folks to believe in the risen Jesus, who's the Messiah of old. Do you remember how John started? Turn all the way back to John 1.1 in case you don't have it memorized. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, this starts very differently than the other three gospel writers do. John wanted us to be stunned from the very beginning at God's redemptive plan. John starts by saying the Word was God. And here John finishes with a repeated instruction from Jesus. You follow me by making the Word known. Now, Matthew and Mark each conclude their gospel testimony with the Great Commission. You might say, where's the Great Commission here? Well, the ending of John's gospel is no different. It's the same commission. To make the word known. Matthew 28 says, go therefore, right? And make disciples. Here he's saying, follow me. Follow me by making God and making my presence known within the community that you live in. But see, instead of being fully outward focused, we expect it to be at the heart of Jesus. Jesus wants our heart more than anything. You follow me. See, it impacted John so greatly, he intentionally captures it and passes it along to us. But I want to make sure that it doesn't remain impersonal. See, our nature will tend to think of you follow me in a categorical you all. It's the Texas version, y'all follow me. 
But what he's saying is, Joey, follow me. Kevin, you follow me. Michael, you follow me. May, and Marla, and Jennifer, and Allie, you follow me. Insert your name there. See, this has been our prayer as elders this year. That you, individually, would follow Him. That you would see Him as Lord. And that you would respond in such a way that the world around you would know whom you're following. And as we move into this next year, our theme is connectedness. Our desire that we connect Christ to the community around us. Friends, because you've been redeemed by the Savior, because He's pursued you over and over and over again to restore you to yourself. So you're not lost, condemned, thinking about all that you've done wrong or thinking about all the ways that you haven't lived up to this standard that somehow you've set for yourself. His purpose in restoring you is simple. That you would share the truth of who he is and love others and connect Christ to the community around you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Friends, that's my prayer for you this morning. That in you is life that is light to men. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. That your word has been since the beginning. The Word always has been. And I thank you that you are pursuing us so patiently, your people, this morning through your Word. Lord, I pray for those who may have heard your Word afresh this morning and want to know more. Draw them to you. Redeem them. Lord, for those who are redeemed here, I pray that you would help us to follow the Savior. Lord, as we engage with the world around us, may our lives be evidence of God's grace to this local community. Wherever He places us and with whomever He connects us with, may we each seek out opportunities to love as Jesus loved, to minister as Jesus ministered, to care and to comfort and to support and to encourage and to speak truth in love. 
Lord, I pray that we would follow you, that we would make you, Jesus, known to the world. May we be light to men on account of the great joy of knowing you, our risen Lord. Lord, let us leave here encouraged, for you have pursued, you have restored, you have commissioned us to share your word for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen.